0: We have uh, before us one of the passages that is uh, oftentimes used and quoted and debated uh, with a fairly well-known doctrinal controversy, and before we get into our fresh text for, for, for this weekend, I want to clean up something that I did not address last weekend uh, from 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 you recall that we saw in, in verses 1 and 2 that Christ is our propitiation, that Christ is the one who turns the wrath of God, his offering turns the wrath of God into favor. This is the grace of God, this is the glory of, uh, the, this is the power of the cross, and that we tremble at that and we rejoice in that. He is our propitiation. Now, we did not address the last part of verse 2. And here's what it says. Let me read all verse 2. It says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the world. Now, you may look at that and say, I don't really see any controversy in that. Why, Why are we spending any time? Well, it's actually controversy in the last part of that verse. Not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. If Christ is the all-satisfying turner of the wrath of God into favor, and if the text says that he did this for the sins of the world, the debate goes, to what extent did that propitiatory work apply? On the on the surface, you could read that and say, well, hey, he did it for all the sins of everybody in the whole world, so whoop-de-doo, we're all going to heaven, yippee skippy let's, let's just party and celebrate. Well, wait, is that what it's saying, that everybody ends up in heaven because he died for the sins of the whole world, and not right away, we're like, okay, well, well, we don't think it means that. And so now we begin to get into why there is debate and discussion about what this means. And I'm going to spend a little time on it, I want to spend a lot of time on it, but I want our congregation to be... Uh, theologically astute and to understand some of these uh, more important debates. There basically are three positions when it comes to the question, to what extent did Jesus' propitiation apply? The first one I've already referred to, it's known as universalist or universalism, and the universalist would look at a verse like this and say, see, aha, it exactly says what I what I believe. I think everybody goes to heaven, and so this is fantastic. He died for the sins of the whole world. The propitiation goes to everybody. No one is eternally condemned. Everyone ends up in heaven, and, and that's true for Hitler, the 9-11 uh, uh, terrorists, uh, Pol Pot, pick your, pick your tyrant, pick your famous sinner. Everybody ends up in heaven. So, uh, heaven is full, hell is empty, love wins. That would be the universal uh, position. Now, the second one would say this, that Jesus paid the price for everyone's sin, but only those who believe benefit from that. Okay. So he paid the price for everyone's sin, but only those who believe benefit from it. They would look at this verse, and they would see in the word World, they would see individuals who would believe. So, Jesus in this position is basically when he dies making an infinite moral uh, payment into the salvation bank account. And whoever believes, when they believe, they withdraw from that account, and now it becomes true for them. And in the end, after Jesus comes back, you've got all of this leftover equity in the account, uh, sins that were paid for, but, but salvation was never uh, applied. The third position says that Jesus made a payment for all who would actually believe. Since God is eternal and since he is sovereign, to have Jesus die for everyone who believed prior to the cross and all who would believe after the cross is divinely doable, and therefore uh, not so difficult for God. Now, the first position is known as universalism. The second position is known as Arminianism. And the third position uh, is known as the Reformed position. Now, a few comments on these. First of all, on universalism. All Orthodox Christians look at universalism as theological wackos, okay? So uh, most Christians would not have any trouble saying, well, we don't believe in that, and there's no way, and I can't fathom Hitler in heaven, uh, for example. So, uh, we'll dismiss that one fairly fairly easily. The real debate is whether Jesus' payment was, uh, if, he, if he paid the moral payment and propitiated God's wrath against sinners, who in the end are condemned because they don't believe, or if Jesus made a moral payment for those who uh, already believed in the Old Testament and who would believe in the New Covenant. I think a helpful picture in this maybe is to think of the three crosses at Calvary. You have Jesus dying in the middle. You have a thief on one side, a thief in the other. If you know the account from the Gospels, at the beginning of the crucifixion, as they're hanging there, both thieves are heaping insults upon Jesus. But one of the thieves has a change of heart. And says to the other thief, why are you uh, abusing Jesus? Um, He's done nothing wrong, we're getting what we deserve. And he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it was a sign of faith, and Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay, so uh, you have the three crosses, two thieves, and Jesus in the middle. When Jesus died, did he die for both thieves, one who believed and one who didn't, that's Arminianism, or did he die for the one who believed? That would be the reform position, maybe a simple way to look at it. Now I'm gonna tell you what I think. Uh, and I think the reason that there is debate about this is that there isn't a passage that crystal clear, 100% says one way or the other. And when we find that in the Bible, I think it calls Christians to uh, be compassionate and gracious in the debate and in the discussion. And I certainly wouldn't want our church to be anything but that. However, it doesn't mean that both are right, because both can't be right. Now, both can be wrong, but they're not both right, and we'll get to heaven and find out which one uh, is, is, is right. And I would say to you that it is more logical and biblically consistent to see Jesus dying for those who would believe than for Jesus to be bearing the guilt and turning propitiatory wrath against, uh, into favor for people that in the end aren't saved and so i would say that the reform position has the higher ground in this debate Uh, but again i would urge compassion for people that maybe would disagree on this and practically speaking it doesn't make that big of a difference in terms of how you do ministry because we can like the apostles say to anybody jesus died jesus died for your sins And if you believe, you will be saved. And to know confidently that the atoning work of Christ, if they believe, is sufficient to save them. And that uh, Jesus' atoning work uh, can be applied to any who will believe, come to God by faith in Jesus. And so, in practical terms, I don't think it makes that big of a difference. But doctrinally, this is something that has been debated, and if I... If I glossed over that last clause, I'd have some of you come up to me, oh, you're a wimp and you're skipping over the hard parts. See, I'm not wimpy. Did you see that? We dealt with the tough stuff. But I don't want to spend the whole message on this because we have fresh text and new truth and it's exciting truth. And it comes back to this question that John over and over again hits, and that is, how can I know that I'm a Christian? Or how can I know that somebody else is a Christian? And today we address the test of obedience, and our passage is chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. So let me read God's word uh, for us. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. God's word before us tonight, which here at Bethel Church we hold high. Amen? Amen. Amen. May his spirit teach us his word tonight. Over and over again in 1 John, John's going to write, this is how we can know, or something like that. And remember, his aim here is to distinguish between the pretender and the authentic follower of Jesus. And we all know, I trust we all realize, if you've been around the church, churches are filled with people that are one or the other, the pretenders and the real deal. And the same thing was true in John's church there in Ephesus. There were pretenders who had left in a church split, and then there were the authentic, real followers of Jesus. And John is wanting The real followers to be assured that they are genuinely Christians and for the pretenders to realize that they are not. And tonight I can say I have the same aim. Would that everybody here that is a genuine follower of Jesus would be assured that you actually are under the grace of God. And would that every person here that is pretending, going through the motions, just took communion, bringing condemnation upon yourself, realizes that condemnation and turns in faith to Jesus. And becomes an authentic follower of Christ. And John has something to say about what these two groups look like. Obedience. John is going to have three tests, and we're going to go hit this again and again. The three tests of whether or not how we can know whether we're a Christian. There is the there is the social test. Do I love? There is the doctrinal test. What do I believe? And there is the moral test, do I obey? And it is this third one that verses three through six center on, the test of obedience. Now you'll notice that he doesn't actually use the word obey or obedience in the text, but he basically does. Notice in verse three and four, he says, keep his commandments. In verse five, he says, keep his word. And in verse six, it says, walk as Jesus did. I would say a very good summary of all of that is that you obey, that you obey his commandments. Now, verse four says it in the negative, okay? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, okay, there's the negative statement. Notice that John says he's a liar, or we might say he's a pretender, he's a poser. The truth is not in him. He is not living according to the truth. So John focuses here on something that he similarly did back in verse 7 where there were people in the church who were saying that I am walking in the light. I am in, I'm sorry, I'm in fellowship with God and yet I am walking in darkness. And we've already seen how John says you can't do both of those. Why? Because God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. You can't have fellowship with a God who is light and you yourself be in darkness. That is incompatible. And we've spent time on how, as Christians, we walk in the light and remain in the light, not by celebrating sin, not by denying the presence of sin, but by confessing it and turning from it and being cleansed ongoingly by the work of Christ applied by the Spirit in our life. So we're kind of we're back on that same point as verse 6, that claim that people were making. So the focus of this test then is the moral direction of the Christian's life. And how obedience evidences genuine salvation. Now let's begin by defining what is obedience. It seems fairly self-explanatory, but let's make it abundantly clear. What is obedience? And notice that it's keep his commands and keep his word what kind of obedience here is john talking about well here's the definition that fruit and evidence of regeneration which treasures god's will inwardly and fulfills god's will outwardly obedience is both inward and outward i've used the illustration before the the teacher that says to the, the little girl in first grade class sit down and she's standing up and and she just sits defiantly and says, sit down. And she stands defiantly, sit down. And finally she sits down and she says, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. God is not looking for mere moralism and the, the mere accommodation to God's commands that is merely outward. It is, it is inward. It begins inwardly with the treasuring of God's will and his word. His word is his will, okay? His word is his will. I treasure it inwardly, I hold it high inwardly, and I fulfill it outwardly in the manner of my life, in the moral and spiritual shape of my life, the decisions that I make. And I say in this definition that this obedience is the fruit and the evidence of genuine salvation. Now, let me read some passages that also get to this. Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. They weren't Pharisees, just doing it on the, you know, conforming on the outside, but inwardly being corrupted, it was obedience that flowed from the heart. Very important. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And what is, it, what is, what is he saying there? It is what we see on the outside that can give evidence of what's going on on the inside. And then Jesus, or I'm sorry, John writes, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. And now Jesus, John fourteen fifteen. I think this is a very important text. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Now these passages and many others talk about the important role of obedience in the Christian life. Now, I want to make something so abundantly clear that if anybody walks out of here and they say, I heard Pastor Steve say this, or they post it on Facebook, that everybody that is actually here will say, you weren't listening, okay? So, I, I want to make something very clear. Obedience is the byproduct of God's grace. It is the fruit. It is not the condition of salvation. If you walk out of here and you think, well, obedience is the condition of salvation, you're going to go out and you're going to try to save yourself by being a really good person or trying to obey the commands or having more obey commands than disobey commands and think that you're right with God. Or maybe you'll leave as a legalist and say, it's my performance then that, 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 that means that I'm a Christian or not. And all of these are missing the point. It flows from a heart that has been changed, made alive, born again, by the Spirit. It's the byproduct. That's why Jesus can say, by their fruit you will know them, is that the fruit is evidence of the root. And in salvation, God changes the root of our hearts, and our root problem is our hearts, which are sinful and fallen, and always inclined to evil, and cannot please God without faith Hebrews 11 6, it is impossible to please God and again John 14 15 if you love me you will obey my commands and you see what he, he doesn't say there if you obey my commands you will love me that's what a dictator and a tyrant says he says if you love me you will obey my commands It begins on the inside, it begins on the heart. It is obedience that flows out of a heart that has been transformed by the gospel, by the spirit, and the miracle of regeneration. So, therefore, real God-pleasing obedience that John's writing about is the evidence of God's grace. And it has to be, because what God calls us to do cannot be self-manufactured. Now, that definition is kind of long and hard to remember, so I'm going to give you a short and easy one. And it really is it's the, it's the title of the message. Obedience, a long walk in the same direction. A long walk in the same direction. Before salvation... The sin nature directionally is always pointing us and pulling us towards sin and immorality and self and the idolatry of me and solidly I am on the throne of my heart and so my life looks like that, right? It, directionally, generally. Now, I have good days when I maybe am nice to my sister and I help the old lady across the street, but... Generally, the the direction of my life is towards me and towards sin and towards self. That's what it means to be a sinner. In salvation, God does inside me something that I can't manufacture on my own. He takes the throne of my heart and he removes me. And on it, he places Jesus. So that now Jesus is the king and the Lord of my heart and my life. And the result of this is that I have a new heart, which means I have new desires. And that then impacts the direction of my life. In fact, that's what repentance means. Repentance is a, is a change of direction. I was living my life, well, I'll go this way because I'm, I'm indicating this to be sin and self. This is the sinful direction. I'm living my life towards self and towards sin. I come to hear the gospel. I put my faith in Jesus. The Spirit comes, does this work inside of me. I repent of my sins and now I want to, with a new heart, live in the direction of pleasing the Lord of my life, who is Jesus. So I was going this way, and now I'm going this way. That's a picture of salvation. You get that? I'll do it again. Like that. It's a change of direction. And I begin walking, which is a picture of living. I begin walking in this new direction. So that obedience is the moral and spiritual walking in the will of God as outlined by the word of God. Maybe view it as like a hike. Okay? Like a hike. I've been on hikes. Every hike I've been on, I think, I've taken some missteps. Have you ever been to one of the state parks or something, you got the hiking map, and you're trying to figure out which way is north and south, and it shows these little dotted lines, go this way, go that way, and you're like, we're gonna go from, uh, you know, the scenic outlook A to scenic outlook B, and we're gonna take the hiking path. And whenever you do that, Uh, there are times where you're lost and you take a misstep and you you go down a little bit of a path and it's not very far before you're like, this path is turning into like a deer path or squirrels or something. It's not, this was not developed by the state park. We're clearly off, get that map out and we get the map out and figure it out. We backtrack back to where we know we ought to have been and then we continue on. That's what it means to go on a hike. The direction though of the hike is in the direction that I need to go, from A to B. If I say, I'm on a hike to Ohio, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hike to Ohio, there is no doubt between here and Ohio, I'm going to have a few missteps, and I'm going to get off some road, or path or road, or it's going to say, you know, uh, strawberry pie down here, and I, oh, it's, let's get off, let's go check this out. No doubt, but... I'm still, I'm heading east, right? I'm heading east. If I say that I am an Ohio hiker, I'm hiking to Ohio, and I am, I find myself in Iowa. I am not going east, I am going west. And if somebody came up to me and said, who are you? I said, I am a hiker who's going to Ohio. The person would say, I don't care what you say, the direction you're going argues against the fact that you are an Ohio hiker. You're in Iowa, for goodness sakes, which everybody knows stands for idiots out walking around. (laughs) Now, I'm from Iowa, and so I can say that. But if any one of you come up and say that to me, Do you see the point that I'm making? And I, I like this analogy because it it pictures what all of us know to be true, if you're, if, if, if you're a Christian, is that there is a change of direction, but that direction is not perfection, is it? We are all the time, a little misstep here, off the path there, confused by the map, lazy or whatever it might be. Our hiking is very imperfect, but directionally... By the power of God, by His Spirit, through the powerful work of Jesus in the heart of the sinner, there is a change of direction. And if there is not a change of direction, or the longer that I am on, I am going to Ohio via Iowa, the less assured and confident that I should be that I'm a genuine Ohio hiker. Why? Because I'm I, my life keeps going to Iowa. If you love me, you will keep my commands, Jesus said. We can know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands, if we walk in the direction that he wants us to go. Similarly, I would say, if, a, if I'm a Christian, and the direction of my life is not towards the keeping of God's commands, you can go on and on about your experience at the Billy Graham crusade, but I'm here to tell you, you are not under the grace of God. And you are exactly the kind of person that Jesus or that John is describing here. You say, well, what should I do? Come in genuine faith to Jesus. Any who come to him, he will not cast out. Come unto me, all you weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And quit walking towards Iowa and get going towards Ohio, spiritual Ohio, the celestial city in Ohio, which everybody from Ohio knows is Columbus, where the Buckeyes play. I'm really mixing my metaphors now, am I not? All right, now, let's see it from the passage, okay? Let's see it from the passage here. How does obedience indicate salvation? First of all, we see that obedience assures us of inward change. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So you see that John is making a connection between what is going on outwardly, morally, and spiritually in my life, and what is going on inwardly, morally, and spiritually in my life. And when there is genuine salvation going on morally and inwardly within me, there is obedience going on morally and spiritually outside of me. And again, I want to remind you, the outward is the fruit of the inward. I don't want anybody leaving here as a moralist, a religionist, is that a word, legalist, any of these things. None of that. We don't want that. It won't last. In fact, this is why I think Religion is so ultimately frustrating for people. Religion tries to compel people to do outwardly what is inconsistent with what is going on inwardly. And it lays down upon people, here, if you want to get to heaven, here's what you have to do. You've got to do this and you've got to do that. Or at least you've got to do more of this then you do of that, and if this, if the good is better than the bad, then you are in. That is religion. And the individual hears that, walks out of the religious organization, whatever it might be, the religion, cults, whatever in the world, and they think, I've got to do more. I've got to do more, or, or I'm, I'm not going to heaven. It reminds me a little bit, and a lot of people are talking right now, about uh, the, the movie Les Mis, Les Miserables. Is that how you say it? The Miserables. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, it's 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 been a play, musical. Now it's it's a very popular movie. A lot of people are um, buzzing about it. I think it got a bunch of Oscar nominations this past week, and so a lot of people are are, are talking about about the movie and. If you don't know the story, the overar- here's the overarching story of uh, of Les Mis, is that uh, there is a main character, and uh, he his his name is Jean Valjean, and uh, he becomes a thief and does some bad things, and uh, he has the opportunity to basically restart his life, and he. Um, discovers an orphan girl and decides that he is going to care for this orphan girl um, and see her well taken care of and see her into adulthood. And his hope is that by doing this, that he will redeem his life. And this is what uh, I think why so many people uh, connect with the, the movie is that everybody can relate to uh, Jean Valjean the sinner, and we all hope to relate to Jean Valjean, the saint. And if you if you see, there's videos online, people weeping and weeping. And I have to be honest with you, I attended it, and I actually felt a little tear come down my face. I really did. So I must be going to heaven because I cried at Les Mis, is what that <laughs> means. Why why are people so powerfully moved by it well i think there are themes of brokenness and pain and the reality of this corrupt world that are that are all over in 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 the storyline but think about the redemption that is offered in les mis if in the end your good outweighs your bad you've redeemed your life you're a good person The last thing that John would say is go out and try to do good and redeem your life. He's just got done saying we can't redeem our life. We're sinners. But Christ has propitiated our life. He has turned the wrath of God into anger. It's not that we trust in these good works to redeem us. We look to Christ as the one who has done the good for us and died in our place. We cannot propitiate ourselves. And all the good works that we try to do will not change us on the level that God requires. The heart. So that real obedience that John's talking about here begins on the inside. And the fruit of that regenerated heart on the outside is that I have a care and concern for the will of God. And I want Jesus to be magnified and honored in my life. And so therefore the decisions that I make the little ones and the big ones, the direction of those is towards the glory of God and a reflection of what God has done for me and the love that he showed in Christ. And as I walk that path over a period of time, I look back on that path and I see missteps and I see places that I got off the path but I see that directionally my life is going in the direction of the will of God. And that's what John is getting at here. We can know that we have come to know him. If as we live the Christian life, he's not talking about day one of being a Christian. He's maybe, he's talking about down the road. I look back and I see the change that Christ has made in my life. And I see that I am not living like the pagan and i am not living like the atheist and i am not living like the uh the the hedonist i am living like a christian who daily needs the grace of god but the direction of my life has been changed and it gives me assurance and what a powerful point i think that is for a couple of reasons one is if you're here and you struggle with assurance of your salvation, and I did for many years, and maybe at some point in this uh, series I'll, I'll talk more openly about that. But if you struggle with assurance of salvation, you're like, Am I a Christian? I don't know if I'm a Christian. The fact that you wonder about that and struggle with it is a great indication that you likely are because you care. You care, and you're here. And the word of God's open, and you're, you're like, what's it say? I want to know. Where does that desire come from? Not Satan, and your sinful self isn't going to want to produce that. That is God. And look at this Christian, and see the grace of God in your life, and feel and taste the goodness of biblical assurance that is not based upon a momentary experience that I had in the past or something that my mommy or daddy said that I did when I was six. But the reality of it in the day-to-day of my life, that's what God is looking for, is the real thing. And how do we show the real thing? There's no better way of showing the real thing than making decisions that honor God, okay? Now, the other thing that this does is for, and this is really my larger concern really in this whole series, is that there are so many people who gather at church on a weekend, sing the songs, take communion, walk out the door, and live a life directionally in opposition to the will of God. And yet will say, I am under the grace of God. I'm an Ohio hiker. No, you're not. You're in Iowa. And John wants For you to look at yourself through the perspective of God's word, and I say this with tenderness to you, but to recognize the evidence of being saved is not saying that you're a Christian. In fact, I don't see that anywhere in John. Well, if you say you're a Christian, then you don't even worry about it. How many people say they're Christians, wear the cross, all of that? I think 80% of America claims to be a Christian. it will change you. Jesus will change you. And if that change is not evident in the general direction of your life, I would urge you to take a very careful assessment and perhaps to come genuinely and humbly in repentance to the foot of the cross and to believe truly For the first time. Obedience directionally assures us of inward change. Secondly, he says that we see increasing evidences of God's love in us. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And John touches, just touches here on what is a major theme in 1 John. So I'm therefore not going to spend that much time on it. Actually, in fact, next uh, next weekend, there's a whole bunch about love, which is one of those three tests. But God's kind of love is increasingly evidenced in the life of the Christian, that self-giving for the good and joy of another love, that agape love, the love of Christ, the love and the life of Christ being developed in the life of the person, the Christian, transforming him into the likeness of Christ, which actually is then what he says in verse 6. By this we know that we are in him. You want to know if you're saved? Actually, look what he says. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now who's the he? The he here, he is not named. I think it's safe to say the he here is Jesus, the incarnate God who walked on this earth and lived a life that we see in the gospels so obedience therefore is the process of God transforming our lives into the likeness of Christ or what I say here into Jesus juniors he's changing us into Jesus juniors I like the fact that he puts this in here because if, if verse 6 wasn't there I think the previous ones, obeying his commands, are kind of esoteric. We could be kind of like, okay, keep his commands, I like that, but what's that look like exactly? And so what does John do? He comes in with a living, breathing example. Oh, by the way, if you want to know what this looks like, it looks like Jesus who is the perfect one, who always fulfilled the will of the Father, who said that was food for him, was to do the will of his Father, that he always wanted to do the will of his Father. Therefore, John says, if you want to know what that looks like, your life ought to look like Jesus. Walk in the same way that Jesus walked. Live in the same way that Jesus lived. Now, does that mean that we imitate Jesus in everything? No. He's not saying here, Uh, that we need to go out and turn water into wine and and, uh, have uh, Lake Michigan walking contests. Don't wear a tunic, don't name 12 disciples, none of that. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the life that he lived, which never once veered off of perfect obedience. One writer says this, our conformity to Christ consists not so much in an imitation of what he did, as in obedience to what he prescribes. The examples of Christ is not our rule without the precept of Christ. Some actions of Christ are unimitatable. Water to wine, raising the dead, et cetera, et cetera. We can't do those. But all his commands are obeyable. And that is what God is doing in the life of the believer. Christian, I can say this to you here. What God is doing in your life, Romans 8, is he is... In the process of changing us into the very likeness of Jesus and it has nothing to do with the way that we look Uh, it has to do with the heart attitudes and the priorities and the manner of life that we live he Jesus lived the perfect life and God wants us he's transforming us into the likeness of people who make moral and spiritual decisions that flow from hearts that treasure the will of the Father that's what he wants how obedient was Jesus Philippians 2 and being found in human form he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross you want to talk about the long walk of Jesus he took a long walk in the same direction and it led him to Calvary it led him to the ultimate obedient act of sacrifice And God may not call us to a cross, but he calls us to carry our crosses, does he not? And to walk and to live with the priorities that we find in the life of Jesus, which none of us will do perfectly. There's only one perfect one, and that's Christ. But we all can do that directionally, can we not? As we endeavor, by the grace of God, flowing from a love for our Savior that wants to bring glory to God. And if I don't want to bring glory to God, or if I say I want to give glory to God, but my life says the opposite of that, that's a pretender. Not the real thing. And as we walk, and over time, the qualities of Jesus' walk are increasingly seen in the kind of directional things that we're making decisions in our life. We will walk in the same way that Jesus did. That's what he's saying. And it is evidence that the Spirit of God is within us. Now this week, I uh, saw a friend of mine posted something. He's, he's a friend. I actually haven't seen him in, in several years. I saw him over the, over the holidays. And he's a pastor in Iowa City, Iowa. Ironically, after picking on Iowa, here I have an illustration from Iowa City, Iowa. He pastors in Iowa City, Iowa. And he posted this week the obituary of A man in his church uh, who was very much loved and who died uh, quite young actually and I want to read the obituary okay I'm gonna gonna read this guy I don't know him never met him but I want to read the obituary and I want us to look at what is said from the perspective of what John writes here and whether or not the family members should think to themselves I think that dad was genuinely a Christian or not. Here's the obituary. And I think we have have his picture. Mark Paul Lobb was born October tenth, 1957, in Virginia, Minnesota. Mark was a selfless provider, always giving and never demanding. He led a life of intentional servitude, modeled after Jesus... His savior, friend, and redeemer. He was earnestly devoted to becoming more like Jesus, even when it pushed him out of his comfort zone. He was a pillar for his family and church. He was a man's man. He almost single handedly built his family's first home, taught his sons how to hunt, rebuilt a car after it was totaled, convinced his family to camp in the boundary waters two years in a row, piloted small planes, slalom water skied like a boss, don't even know what that means. (laughs) It sounds cool, though. And rode his Harley. He was a dad and husband who could accomplish almost anything, but always deferred recognition or praise. He was quick to tell everyone how blessed and lucky he was. Always humble, always loving. Mark Lobb died this week. Now, obituaries always tend to be glowing, okay? Always tend to be glowing. They rarely talk about people's faults in obituaries, and there's no doubt that Mark had his own set of faults and failures. And just because you do the things that he did here in the obituary, does that mean that you're saved? No, it doesn't. But John doesn't have one evidence of salvation. He has three. Believing in Jesus... A life of love and a life of obedience and so you have maybe even today i don't know when the funeral is his family gathering together probably wondering where is dad now how can they know they can know based on the word of god and a life that was lived in a particular direction Where the evidences of the gospel began to flower all over in his life. Failures, yes. Imperfections, yes. But direction was clear in his life. Would that every single one of us here would have in our life the kinds of evidences that we stand in the mirror, we look, we say, you know what? How can I explain What's going on except for Jesus has changed my life? And to bear that fruit, not thinking that the fruit saves, because it doesn't. It is the byproduct of the work of the Spirit of God in our life. So may our lives, like Mark's, be towards God, towards his will, towards his glory. And when we misstep, we confess, we get back on the path, we continue to walk, as we make our way towards the celestial city. And I hope every single one of us is there. Amen. Amen.